Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. When President Franklin Delano Roosevelt met the Saudi King Abdulaziz on board a US Navy destroyer in the Suez Canal back in February 1945, they built the foundations of a relationship that would shape global events for the following 80 years. In return for security guarantees, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia agreed to manage and stabilize global oil prices in America's interests. This arrangement went through various ups and downs over the decades, but it is now certainly over. When Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine in February 2022, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, refused to help stabilize oil prices, in spite of direct appeals from both President Biden and Boris Johnson. And a few weeks ago, the Saudis worked in partnership with Russia to push the prices up. So it's clear that MBS sees his influence over global energy to be something to be exercised purely in Saudi interests. To discuss this new reality, I'm delighted to be joined by Bradley Hope, co-author of a book about MBS called Blood and Oil, and now co-founder of Project Brazen, a new journalism company. Bradley, welcome. Thank you. I retold that story of the FDR um, meeting in, in the Suez Canal with, with the Saudi king. Of course, people, I think, sometimes overemphasize the significance of that particular moment in history. But it is fair, is it not, to say that for the decades following World War II, up until very recently, the US felt it could rely on the Saudis to stabilize oil prices broadly in the interests of America's economic uh, needs. Yes, I think so. I think the way I always imagine it is that essentially America provided protection for the royal family and for and essentially for Saudi sovereignty. And in exchange, Saudi Arabia didn't really have a very vigorous foreign policy. It was sort of falling in line with its partnerships, especially with the United States until more recently. And there are certain crisis points which are perhaps analogous to the Ukraine crisis. I'm thinking, for example, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and, of course, threatened an invasion of Saudi Arabia, oil prices spiked high, as they often do at moments of global crisis, and the Saudis worked to stabilize the prices uh, by, by increasing their production. Yes, and, and I, you can kind of understand why that is, because, you know, when, when, uh, when foreign powers were asking for that help, they were saying, you know, this isn't a kind of profit-making opportunity. You know, we need you to help do your part for the kind of global order, in a sense. So we, we come to the events of, of the past 14 months. But before we get to that, let's talk a bit about MBS. You're, of course, something of an expert on, on this man. He, he is effectively the ruler of Saudi Arabia. He's not the king. He's a crown prince. But the king is, is very elderly and, and somewhat inactive. Can you, uh, for those who are a bit less familiar, give us a portrait of MBS and, and how he is different to his predecessors in terms of being the preeminent prince controlling the country? You know, Mohammed bin Salman was one of these many, many nephews of the of the of King Abdullah, who if you if you had a big family portrait, he would be way down on the end, you know, in in the in the hinterlands of the family. This is a family yeah. with thousands of members. He yeah. was he was not on anyone's radar, but through a kind of series of, I guess, events. A couple of his uncles died relatively quickly, and it put his father in line for the throne. And MBS was really 
not thinking that he he or his father would have been in power. So he was actually more of the, the businessman of the family. Um, but when that happened, he he really switched into gear to kind of bolster his father's position, and he had to defeat some attempts to jump over him in the in the succession. There were some some officials in the in the royal family that wanted other people to be the next king. And um, he just really hit Saudi Arabia like a storm, especially the royal family, because he had this sort of knack for extremely aggressive, high-risk strategies that took everyone by surprise. And so he, when his father became the king, the first thing he did was just start cleaning up and, and taking really aggressive actions against his own family. And um, ob- obviously, the world knows him for his for a series of things. One of them is his um, ambitious kind of economic plans that led to huge investments around the world. You know, they were the cornerstone of the vision fund, the $100 billion vision fund. They invested in Uber. Um, You know, he was really everybody's favorite new prince for a long time until the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi by by intelligence officers that were under his command. And so, you know, some of the other great highlights was when he he threw everybody, including his own relatives, into the Ritz-Carlton and locked the doors until people gave up money that he said was the result of corruption. You know, there was the war in Yemen. He's he's really just the the last person you would have thought to become the the most powerful person in Saudi Arabia, and he's really completely cemented his power and control. And one of the things that makes him unusual is that unlike many of his cousins and even some of his siblings, often these Saudi princes will spend time getting educated or trained in in uh, abroad. You know, they might attend high-end Western universities. Some of them have been through military academies, Sandhurst, West Point, and so on. But that was not the case with MBS's education, was it? No, he stayed He stayed in Saudi Arabia. And, and in a way, he had a kind of, you know, he's still a young a young prince in the, in the scheme of things. But when, when he was coming up, he, he stayed in Saudi Arabia. He was focused on business. He had all these weird things he was interested in. He was really interested in Japanese manga comics. He created a company related to manga comics in Saudi Arabia. These aren't the things of somebody who expects to someday be the king of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, he's got half brothers. You know, his father obviously had more than one wife and his, his older half brothers are extremely posh Saudi princes who have posh British accents, who love horses and, and, and high society in London. He didn't, he didn't kind of go through that experience. He, you know, he learned English relatively late and even still is improving it to this day. You know, and, and he also has other kind of much more young, young seeming habits. Like he's really interested in electronic dance music and is, is it himself a DJ? You know, so it really does feel like a, a, a almost like a Generation Z or maybe a young millennial prince. That context is important because in a way it perhaps helps us to situate his complete change of this energy relationship. So let's, if we were to fast forward to the events of February last year, of course, Vladimir Putin began this full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Once again, uh, global energy markets are are kind of racked by this news. Oil prices shoot up. But it's more than that. It, it's the, the fact that Russia itself had been the major provider of hydrocarbons to Western Europe. A lot of long-established certainties were, were destroyed by Putin's invasion. And lots of people, myself included, assumed that even with MBS in power, the Saudis would continue their usual role of being a sort of guarantor 
and uh, the the supplier of last resort, if you like, of, of global oil. But they didn't do that. So could you tell us a bit about what they did do and, and your understanding of, of what was driving MBS's approach there? Well, there's a few things going on, too. You know, you have to put the Hoshoji uh, matter into perspective as well, because ever since then, he would really became a, a global pariah in the in the eyes of of many of the world leaders, especially U.S. President Joe Biden, who refused to interact with him and said he would only interact with his counterpart, which would have been the king, which was obviously silly because the king really isn't running Saudi Arabia. And it was just a, it was a way to kind of punish MBS. But fast forward to recently, they actually needed Saudi Arabia to play this role that you described. And so Joe Biden actually went to Saudi Arabia and 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 sort of, you know, with his sort of his cap in his hand in a way and, and agreed to do a fist bump with MBS to, in, as a kind of sign of good faith, expecting that they would play that traditional role. But instead, Saudi Arabia said, well, we thought about it and no, we're not going to play that role. In fact, we're going to keep things just as they are and we're going to reap this benefit and and it's not just like sort of pure greed, but it, the, the the Saudi perspective is they're in a once in a lifetime, once in a generation economic transformation. If the price of oil is going to help them with that, they're going to take it. And and it sort of shocked everybody in the world because they expected world leaders to kind of play a role that was similar to their predecessors. And and MBS has shown that he has a Saudi first perspective, and he doesn't really believe in any of the things that everyone. Uh, assumed previously, and and so he's willing to have these kind of edgy partnerships. You know, they're they're working very closely with China. They have a relationship with Russia. They haven't cut people off. He's restoring ties with Syria. So this kind of Saudi first approach, of course, I mean, any ruler will, uh, whether they're a democratic or 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 a sort of autocrat, a monarch or whatever, will always say that they act in the interests of their country and their national interests and so on. And 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 it's for others to to make a judgment. It is certainly the case that. As you you mentioned, some of MBS's sort of other foreign policy escapades, notably the war in Yemen, but also you know interventions in Lebanon, the the uh, the, the embargo against Qatar, which of course is a, a neighbouring country. The track record of MBS's foreign policy decision making is somewhat patchy. What are the risks associated with this this decision uh, as regards to energy? The risk to Saudi Arabia is that th- there's kind of unknown or unexpected consequences. You know, the, it, it sounds good to say Saudi first. In reality, I think the predecessors, by the way, weren't thinking Saudi first. They were thinking royal family first. And yeah. you could argue that MBS is making a decision that is really more in, you know, more in the long-term economic viability of the Saudi people uh, because he's trying to, you know, do this economic transformation. And I think the risk is with all of MBS's activities and all of his decisions is he takes these very aggressive, almost kind of cavalier at time approach to things, believing that he sort of knows better. And 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 when you do that, there's all kinds of unintended consequences, you know. So the war in Yemen is a good example. You know, that was supposed to be a kind of quick intervention, like like I guess many wars launched by big powers, but it became a, um, a morass. And it's it's been going on for years now and it's still causing problems and it's a huge waste of money so you know not pairing up with the the, the his typical allies could result in unexpected things you know maybe the US will find a way to punish Saudi Arabia in a way that is is more harmful than the gain that he made by not lining up 
I mean, I guess the part of the question here is, of course, that the the calculation is not a simple one in the sense that, yes, oil prices are going to be higher under this Saudi approach. But of course, what the US was hoping the Saudis would do is raise production levels. And that's another way in which, of course, Saudi Arabia, you know, can increase its, its revenues by increasing volumes. So, so it, it, it's, is, it, is it clear from a purely kind of financial perspective that this approach uh, nets Saudi more revenues overall? Well, that's a good question that I, I'm probably not entirely qualified to answer, but I think they would like the price of oil to stay high for as long as possible because they because you know they're sitting on this ocean of oil and the value of it is kind of mysterious in a sense because it, the value of it is hard to predict in the future you know what's going to happen with with the global energy situation how much, how fast will electric cars become the, the the dominant form of travel and all that sort of thing so i think the, i think the, the the short term is just let's keep the price of oil high and the production at the same level and then we might be able to maximize the price of our asset longer, you know, but it's, it's hard to say exactly if even if that was part of the equation. The one thing about MBS that's important is that while he does have a lot of strategic thinking going on, there is also a kind of personality as- aspect to this. You know, the fact that Biden and the U.S. government, especially Democratic leadership, was so critical of him and so pushing for his kind of exile from global politics. In some ways, I think he's trying to make sure that people know he's actually a lot more powerful than you might have hoped or thought he was. I'm glad you got to that, because I actually wanted to try to see if we can sort of disentangle that a little, because on one level, you can describe this as as a sort of a nationalist policy that's in the national economic self-interest of Saudi Arabia. And as you say, he's trying to transform the economy. And indeed, there's this idea that this is Saudi's last chance to transition to a post-oil economy. And, you know, the, the growth of the population, the fact that in the end, oil is not a limitless resource, and certainly demand for oil is not limitless. These are all factors in play there. But I guess the the countervailing argument is that this isn't, this isn't about Saudi's national interest. This is the petulant response of someone who didn't like being rendered an international pariah, and perhaps particularly so, someone who's a very young man, someone who perhaps lacks a a measure of maturity. There's the famous quote, which I think was in a long article in The Atlantic, where Mohammed bin Salman complains about his human rights in contradistinction to the human rights of Jamal Khashoggi. Now, most most observers would find that bizarre. You know, one guy was murdered and chopped up. Uh, But that that gives you an insight into his mentality. So how how do you sort of disentangle those elements? In general, I I try to avoid uh, falling into the the framework of petulance as being a, a major factor. I, I think I tend to be somebody who gives him a lot more credit than most commentators do. I think he is extremely strategic. You could even argue strategically that showing the world that he's powerful is a strategic move, you know, that it may seem like petulance or it may seem driven by petulance, but perhaps it's actually another kind of longer term strategic play move by him. I think the one thing that's really important to remember about him is MBS is not interested in politics. You know, he cleaned up politics in Saudi Arabia so that he is now essentially an absolute monarch in practice. There's no, there's not even a member of his 
extended family that is waiting in the wings. He really controls Saudi Arabia completely, which is more extreme than any other country in the Gulf. Yeah. And I think that, you know, he he is interested in things that are far from like, you know, if you were to, if you were to go and try to talk to him about the the Israeli-Palestinian issue, that would be the least interesting thing he could discuss. He's not interested in that. He's not yeah. interested in long running issues. He wants to think about, oh, well, what if we just cut through it altogether? You know, you've got a, you've got a tangled knot. What if we just cut the knot, you know? And, and um, the things that get him interested in are, are, you know, technology, business to some extent. You know, he's, he's actually a much more business-oriented leader of Saudi Arabia than probably has ever existed and maybe will ever exist again. You know, it's, just, it's a very strange kind of feature of him that, that I think drives a lot of his decision making. And if you're, a, quote, the CEO of Saudi Arabia, then you need people to take you seriously. And I think a lot of what he does is, is making sure that he's not, that this punishment that's been going on about Hashoji comes to an end. And it pretty much has been the case. People are all coming to him now asking for his help, including people who promised they would never speak to him. Even U.S. politicians are coming and saying, okay, I've changed my mind about you. All the business people of the world, the venture capital funds that that pretended like they cared a lot and didn't want to go to Saudi Arabia anymore, they're all back asking for money. So he's really, he's really done a major reversal, uh, whether people like it or not. Undoubtedly, you know, the famous Davos in the desert, this is this big business conference, you know, the one just after the Hashoji killing was basically empty. And, and now it's, you know, as you say, the, the delegation lists are, are full up. But I, I want to push back slightly on this idea of him being very strategic, because as, as I think we've both sort of observed, most of his foreign policy escapades proved pretty disastrous. I mean, it, it seems that, it, you know, you can call yourself strategic, but if you keep blundering, people are entitled to question if that's a valid description. Well, I think the, the the way I would think about it is this. He's had the most extraordinary development of leadership that you could imagine, right? He went from a completely unknown prince with no power or authority, and, and he had a manga company, to the, the essential ruler of Saudi Arabia, the most powerful country in the Gulf, the biggest population with, you know, the custodian of Mecca and Medina. And, and, the way he got to where he is right now was through a lot of cavalier, maverick activity. I mean, there's there's everything about the first five years of MBS was characterized by action first, reflection second. And a lot of those things were, were disastrous. But I think the dangerous thing to do is to imagine him as a petulant teenager who just makes his decisions with that kind of emotion in, in, in his mind. I don't think that at all. I think he he actually has a very big advisory kind of board in a sense. And by this point, the last, so the first five years were crazy and intense and, and characterized by these actions. The second five years, which we're in the middle of, has been very different. I mean, we haven't seen things like that anymore it, with, with maybe perhaps this decision with regards to oil being one of the more aggressive actions, but it's not quite like the Ritz-Carlton, Hashoji, the war in Yemen, you know, so he's, he's in a new phase. And I think it's important to recognize that. We've talked about the oil, but the other big development that seems to be happening in the same time frame is Saudi Arabia changing its relationship with Iran. Now, I, I think some people have oversold this. It, it's not like Iran and Saudi are now best friends, but it's clear that they, they have moved on significantly from 
a kind of deep enmity that was that was definitely in place a few years ago. Now, is that something that's happening because Russia and China wanted to happen, or is it happening because Saudi Arabia has failed in Yemen, or what? What, what are the what are the reasons that this is happening? My take is that. MBS and also the spy chief of the United Arab Emirates called Tahnoun bin Zayed have a very important shared perspective that the rest of the world has kind of, in a way, held them hostage by these more traditional conflicts. Of course, the long, the long-running Saudi-Iranian contest has been going on for many, many years and decades. But I think they, they both came to the conclusion that. If we continue to operate within the, the paradigm that they think is being kind of foisted on them, that they will continue to have less power or less say and, and less ability to have a kind of Gulf first or Saudi first or UAE first foreign policy. And so it, it may come back to bite them in a, in a terrible way, but they have decided to say, well, you know, MBS is actually not emotional about some of those historical things. You know, he might be emotional about other things, but he's not particularly aggravated about the history of Saudi-Iranian relations. If he could go there and, and despite the odds, have a completely new relationship where the world doesn't keep talking about Saudi versus Iran, but in fact, they have a good relationship with Iran, it, maybe it solves his problems. Again, he he's thinking about this economic transformation more than anything else. The, the Iranian-backed drone attack on Aramco a couple of years ago was one of the scariest things to happen in Saudi Arabia. It really was an indication that this isn't a hot war they want to be in because they're not going to be in good shape, you know? And in a way, that that point that you've mentioned there is shows that the sort of the gamble at the heart of this, because clearly, um, you know, the sort of long-term enmity with Iran uh, one could argue has has not done Saudi any favors. It probably hasn't done Iran any favors. But at the same time, if the Saudis' new approach means that they don't, they can't expect security guarantees from America, what are the likely future outcomes if Saudi Arabia faces perhaps a hot war with Iran, just for, for example, or perhaps it faces a major insurgency within its own borders? Or, you know, one, there's a whole range of, of, of diff- difficult scenarios that can happen in what is a very combustible part of the world. Do you think America would would end up helping anyway, just because they, they see interests in a more stable region? Well, I have two thoughts about that. One of them is this Iranian activity, this new kind of frenzy of activity probably wouldn't have happened without China's involvement in some way. I think yeah. China is really positioning itself in an in a interesting way to be a kind of security counterpoint to the US and to the West and to kind of vouch for these relationships. So that's important. And I think that's definitely a part of this. I think on the other hand, if you watch the comments from different parts of the US government, you might hear the executive branch or the legislative branch saying things like, we're going to cut Saudi off or we're not going to protect them anymore. But the the Defense Department always holds a very consistent line. We are not reevaluating any of this. Because yeah. ultimately, from the, from the straight security point of view, the relationship just has to stand. It's too dangerous for, for, for any of these Western superpowers to let Saudi Arabia drift too far away. It's too, it's too influential. You know, it's too critical, whether it's for energy, but it's also even just its sort of role in the global, in global Islam. And, and, and to lose that relationship is just too costly, no matter how much they might be upset, you know, by some of these other more recent decisions. 
And it's perhaps at that point, the way you've articulated it, which is the key strategic insight that MBS has reached, which is that he, he actually has a lot more latitude than perhaps his predecessors believed they had because, because of the, the, the role that Saudi plays. I, my final thought is, obviously, we, we've, we've mentioned already, he's a very young man. It's, it's, it's not a democracy. There are no term limits. He's in line to become king. He's, he's a de facto ruler in any case. So what, what do you foresee in the future? And the, and the future might last decades, of course. I guess the economic transformation is fundamental, but there's, there's plenty of evidence that it, it is struggling. You know, Vision 2030 is, 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 has been sort of rewritten and, and, and many, many um, doubt that it will, it will achieve its objectives. And of course, the demographic pressures on the country are immense, a fast-growing population, whereas you know, revenues are fairly static. So what, what do you foresee in the future for Saudi Arabia? I wouldn't hold it against Saudi Arabia to be falling short of like their their Vision 2030 plan. You know, nobody who creates a plan like that actually believes they will achieve those points. But I think it's like you know, you you want to achieve you want to achieve something, so you have to set a high target. So I don't think it's, it's I don't think it really even reflects badly on them. I do think they have a challenge, which is how do they actually build a sustainable economy? And a lot of their projects that they talk about are these kind of they're famous in the Middle East, these mega projects that sound amazing. They're all rendered amazingly by global architects. And, and it's just unclear whether or not they will do anything other than just cost a lot of money, you know? Yeah. But the, the truth is he's going to do these things. You know, at this point, he has the resources and the will. So it's unlike some countries where they kind of made promises and then they just they pulled back. It doesn't seem like he's pulling back at all. And so I think it's going to be quite interesting to see what comes of it and what kind of economies can actually become vibrant there. The other thing, obviously, is the Gulf contest about this in the first place. You know, Dubai thought they were doing that. Then Abu Dhabi said they're going to build all the same things they have in Dubai to contest with their own and within their own country. You know, there's Doha. There's all these countries believe that they should be the center and Saudis using its biggest size and, and more resources to say, you have to be Saudi first, and that could cause some tensions as well. But not, even if they, even if nothing comes of it, it at least causes a, a, a kind of dilution of value because everybody has the world's biggest airline, the world's biggest financial center, and it's not necessary. It's not needed. There's no market fit, if you use a business term, to have that many business headquarters, you know? Bradley, I want to thank you for joining us today and helping us at least understand where we're at in 2023. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you for joining us. The Bunker is free to download, but if you'd like what you're hearing and you want to make sure there's more where this came from, then you can back us on Patreon for as little as £3 and help us to keep bringing you podcasts. I'm Arthur. Thanks for joining us. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and our group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.